Welcome to Transatlantic Takeaway by Common Ground Berlin and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. In our episodes, we explore the impact of key international developments on the European Union and the United States. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. And I'm your host, Rachel Tausenfreund. It's been three months since Russia invaded Ukraine, and there doesn't seem to be an end to the war in sight. But is this a war that either country can win? And what are the repercussions going to be for NATO, the global order, and the European order? Joining us in our Berlin studio to answer these questions and more are Liana Fix, Program Director for International Affairs at the Kerba Foundation in Berlin. She's an expert on Russia and Eastern Europe. And veteran journalist Gesine Dornblut, co-author of a book on German-Russian relations called Ruhmlose Helden. She is a former Moscow correspondent for Deutschlandradio. Welcome to you both. Hi. Hello. And joining us via Zoom today are two colleagues of mine, Jörg Fürbrig, Senior Fellow and Director for Central Eastern Europe at our GMF office in Berlin, and Michal Baranowski, Senior Fellow and Director at the GMF office in Warsaw. Welcome. Hi from Warsaw. Thanks for having me. NATO's foreign ministers recently met in Berlin, and after the meeting, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, he told reporters that Russia is failing tactically in Ukraine and failing also strategically around the world. President Putin wants Ukraine defeated, NATO down, North America and Europe divided. But Ukraine stands, NATO is stronger than ever, Europe and North America are solidly united. Ukraine can win this war. Michal, do you agree with Stoltenberg? Yeah, I must say that Secretary General is right. Uh, Ukraine is winning, and now people are more looking at what the outcome of the war might be and how bad it is going to be for Russia. We are not at the end of the road, but it really looks that the trend is very positive for Ukraine. West is certainly united, and we are on the eve of having Finland and Sweden joining the alliance. So across the board, when it comes to impact on Ukraine, impact on the West or NATO, Putin just miscalculated very, very badly and is losing this strategic confrontation that he decided to start on February 24th. What about you, Gazina? Do you see Russia leaving without territorial gains? Could Vladimir Putin even stay in power if he were to lose Crimea or Donetsk and Luhansk, you know, other areas of the Donbass that they have some control over, um, which, of course, have been under Russian control since his first invasion back in 2014? I think Putin now sits so heavy on his seat that it's not a question about Putin leaving or not. It's an autocracy. It's a dictatorship. So I don't think that uh, the end of the war will have an impact on whether he stands in power or not. And about territories, um, for Russia, it's a no-go to give Crimea back to Ukraine and also to give Donbass back to Ukraine. And um, this is a problem because Ukraine won't agree on a ceasefire if Russia stays in Ukraine. In any of the territories? Well, it depends. Um, the statements of Zelensky were not clear. At the beginning, he said that there could be a ceasefire and um, negotiations if Russia pulls back to the territories uh, they occupied before February 24th. But since Ukraine is now doing well or better uh, in the war, 
um, he also stated a different position and said that it's a no-go to give any territory to Russia. So it's not clear yet. Liana, what about from the perspective of the West, of NATO, the other European powers? Will we accept Crimea or any other part of Ukraine remaining under Russian control in an eventual uh, negotiated solution? Well, actually, the West and European countries would have been happy with an even earlier ceasefire. So I think the question of Crimea and the eastern parts of Donbass, which have been under occupation um, since 2014, this really matters to Ukrainians. But the West and Europeans have called for another ceasefire. Scholz has called for a ceasefire. Macron has called for a ceasefire. So it's actually not clear whether Ukraine and its allies are on the same page here with regaining Crimea and the eastern Donbass. And that is a problem because being on the same page in terms of what does victory mean, as Gesine said, is incredibly important so that there's no disunity within the alliance, especially if Ukraine is able to launch a counteroffensive and to push Russia further back. We also have a lot of concern that Putin might be cornered in public debates in European countries. That's something where a clear definition of goals would actually help to steer this debate forward. In another extraordinary development, which Michelle actually uh, talked about briefly, Finland and Sweden say they want to join NATO. The alliance has pledged to fast-track their applications. And this is what Stoltenberg told reporters at the NATO meeting in Berlin about this, quote, historic moment. Finland and Sweden are NATO's closest uh, partners. Their membership in NATO would increase our shared security, demonstrate that NATO's door is open and that aggression does not pay. Michal, I'm going to go to you again. The Secretary General suggested that the expansion of NATO, this expansion of NATO, will be a game changer. Uh, Why do you think so? So I'm just back from Tallinn, where the mood is very high because of, and positive because of Sweden and especially Finland joining. Those are two countries that will provide a way for NATO to actually support uh, the Baltic states in case of possible, not probable, but possible aggression from Russia. They are both, especially Finland, military capable. Um, uh, Finland has a very, both large army but also very strong air force, as well as strong navy. This basically makes out of the Baltic Sea a NATO lake uh, with a little access for Russia. So it's very good news for especially the Baltic states, but it's really for the whole northeastern flank of the alliance that they are joining. We have about a year uh, moment where the accession process will take place. This is going to be a vulnerable moment. That's why UK and United States are extending sort of, but pretty clear security uh, guarantees. So it's altogether very good news for the rest of the alliance, especially, again, the Baltic states and, and Poland. Jörg, we've talked now about Finland, Sweden, NATO, but what other changes are happening in the European order, in the European cosmos, as a result of this war? I mean, you're our expert also on Belarus here at GMF. How is Lukashenko, how is, are the people of Belarus reacting? What about elsewhere in Eastern Europe? Are we seeing changes? Well, I think... Uh, the bigger change at the moment is actually on the part of the sort of Western part of the European Union, because I think the question that's fast emerging is uh, where are 
our borders. What is the future of countries to our east, whether it's Ukraine or Moldova or also Belarus eventually, in this European uh, framework? We're coming uh, increasingly to the realization that whatever we've tried in Eastern Europe with formats that kept these countries uh, out of the European Union uh, simply doesn't work. This is also where I think uh, proposals such as the ones that came from President Macron uh, are doomed to fail because we've had the Eastern Partnership that was sort of trying to be a substitute for fully-fledged EU membership. And this is clearly not enough for countries like Ukraine uh, or Moldova or Georgia. So I think the biggest question that I think is before us uh, is to define our relationship to what we saw as our Eastern neighborhood, to acknowledge that they are parts of a future European Union and to support them in their ambitions to get there because nothing less is acceptable to Ukrainians, Moldovans and others in the region. Gazina, Vladimir Putin has warned Finland and Sweden that they will regret their decision to join NATO. But is it an empty threat? It's part of the propaganda and of Putin's games. And I think this step of enlargement and Finland and Sweden becoming NATO members is a very, very important uh, sign of strength and of decisiveness. And I'm deeply convinced that Russia won't send rockets or something against Sweden or Finland. Although I think it was the deputy um, representative of Russia at the UN who said that those weapons might become a target of Russia. But part of the game of threatening NATO. Liana, do you agree? I mean, is this uh, an empty threat or are we looking at potential chemical or even nuclear weapons being deployed either in Ukraine or in NATO or even other places? Well, obviously, we should not exclude anything. But there are two reasons why this is not a probable scenario. The first reason is that Putin has many other means at his disposal in Ukraine, conventional means that he can use before he goes further and uses chemical and nuclear weapons. And the second reason is that the use especially of a nuclear weapon would have very high political and military risks. I mean, this would be the first use of nuclear weapons in decades, and it would mean that both China and India would look at Russia more skeptically, would perhaps leave Russia as a partner. It would also mean a military risk because NATO could become involved conventionally in Ukraine as a response, although nuclear response is certainly unlikely And it could also be just risks that any nuclear cloud, um, radioactive cloud, could also move to Russia. So these are all reasons why we should distinguish between nuclear threats as a political instrument to scare the West away from support for Ukraine and nuclear threats as a potential but rather unlikely risk. Jörg, I want to go to you again. We heard a bit at the beginning some assessments of a new endgame for Ukraine and as a result also for Russia with this war. Do you think the endgame is for both parties quite different from when the war started three months ago? Well, I think uh, we want to start by what the essence of this conflict is. Uh, it may sound a little philosophical, but I think it's broadly acknowledged that this is a contest, a conflict between democracy and dictatorship. The freedom of the many in Ukraine, their survival actually at the moment, uh, and the power of one in, uh, in Russia. And I think that uh, sort of within this sort of broad framework, uh, the end games have been evolving over time. 
uh, I think the first end game in 2014, when this war actually started, uh, was Putin's attempt to basically neuter Ukraine to prevent it from any form of independent development. This failed, so he needed to take the stronger means. Uh, that's how he starts his aggression now. Prior to that, he tried to extract concessions for a zone of influence that includes Ukraine from the West. So there's shifting goalposts here, uh, I would say. And the further this war has developed, the more reduced, uh, I think, Russian designs or endgames have become. I mean, by now, it's more about holding the territories that they've had prior to uh, the 24th of February in Ukraine. And if Ukraine successfully pushes against those, then eventually the question obviously will appear uh, of whether or not Putin can remain in power. So I think we have sort of shifting end games here. And the same for Ukraine. I think the initial push of Ukraine uh, after the 24th of February was obviously to secure its own survival politically and as a country. It succeeded in this. Now it's about sort of limiting how far Russia can go. And initially also to, uh, or already we see signs of, uh, of Ukraine pushing back. And I think that especially President Zelensky has also made it clear what the end game is. And that is the liberation of those territories that Russia occupies uh, currently in Ukraine. Those territories that has occupied since 2014, with uh, parts of the Donbass and Crimea, and those territories that it uh, currently holds. I think Zelensky couldn't have been clearer in this speech a week ago on this endgame. Uh, and I don't think that there's anybody who can prevent uh, Ukraine really from pursuing this goal. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about the Russian war in Ukraine and its repercussions. Stay tuned. I'm Verena Hütter, host of The Big Ponder, the Goethe Institute's transatlantic podcast, bringing abstract concepts to life through personal radio essays. Every other week, our producers turn broad topics into captivating stories told from a U.S. and German perspective. You can find all episodes of The Big Ponder on our website, goethe.de, as well as on your favorite podcast apps. And discover the stories behind The Big Ponder on our radio show, Sounding the Big Pond. It is broadcast each Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. We do look forward to connecting with you. This is Common Ground Berlin, and I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. And I'm the senior producer, Dina El Said. Each week, we bring you a podcast aimed at deepening your understanding of critical issues in Germany and beyond. But to make our podcast even better, it's important for us to hear what you think. You can share that with us by rating the show on your podcast app. You can also write us a review on the platform you use to listen to our episodes. We look forward to your feedback. And join us again next Monday on Common Ground Berlin. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972.
Welcome back to Transatlantic Takeaway. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson of Common Ground Berlin, and we are talking about whether the Russian war in Ukraine is winnable and what the repercussions are for those countries and the rest of the world. And I'm Rachel Tausenfreund of the German Marshall Fund. Our guests are Liana Fix, Program Director for International Affairs at the Kurba Foundation in Berlin, journalist and former Deutschland Radio Moscow correspondent Gesine Dornblut, Michal Baranowski, who is a senior fellow and heads our GMF office in Warsaw, and Jörg Fürbrig, senior fellow and director for Central Eastern Europe at the GMF office in Berlin. Before the break, we were talking about the plans for NATO's expansion. So let's talk more now about how this war is affecting another alliance, namely the EU. We've seen rare unity in the bloc since the war began and European solidarity in general. Take, for instance, Ukraine's recent resounding win in the Eurovision Song Contest. But, Liana, there are signs that the solidarity is weakening as inflation and economic hardships increase as a result of the war. So is the EU faltering? Is the solidarity faltering? First of all, the European response has really been a success. I think no one would have imagined this kind of strong response, both in sanctions and weapon deliveries before the war. But then, obviously, there's the question of time. The longer the war goes on, the more Western societies and European societies that are not used to confrontation and military conflict will get some kind of war fatigue and perhaps then call for pre-major ceasefires, as we have already seen in some parts of the German debate. And within the EU, we all obviously have um, our Viktor Orbans, um, who is at the moment isolated um, compared to his position uh, and his close partnership with Poland beforehand. But that doesn't lead him to stop his spoiler position within the European Union. So the question of the Russian oil embargo is something which is problematic. The sooner the oil embargo comes into place, the better and the stronger its effects are. So hopefully there will be a political resolution of this dispute. But I would not say overall that the EU is faltering. There are challenges, but so far it's still quite strong in its response. Uh, Michal, Liana started talking about Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who recently won a resounding uh, election victory, and as she said, is a holdout on a European agreement for a Russian oil embargo. Traditionally, Poland and Hungary in the last years have been pretty close allies. What damage is the Hungarian action doing to the Visegrad 4 group, the Central Eastern European group, and um, what about its relations with Poland. Is the capital starting to see Viktor Orban uh, differently? Something that is indeed becoming more and more apparent in Warsaw that Orban is um, seen as a very difficult partner for Warsaw. It's not very public yet, but when you talk with um, especially security community and uh, high-level military commanders, ministers as well, it's clear that uh, Visegrad 4 and especially the Warsaw-Budapest connection is maybe not breaking apart, but it's being put through a very strong stress. Warsaw will continue to work with Orban when it comes to EU and basically blocking the rest of the Union from putting too much pressure either on Budapest or on Warsaw. But Budapest and Orban's position on Ukraine, especially on sanctions, is seen as beyond the pale, as very, very negative here, really by everyone. I don't see this relationship breaking apart 
because two countries need each other for the reasons of having both problems with democratic standards in their own country. Uh, but it's basically uh, just important, but the EU dimension that is holding them together. Russia, relations with Russia and its position on the war in Ukraine is something that is definitely pulling the tool apart. You were talking about the security uh, crowd in Poland in particular. Uh, I think that um, Hungary's new president, Katalin Novak, is planning a visit to Warsaw to Poland uh, soon. Do you think she's going to make a lot of public appeal? Are you expecting it to have any effect in terms of these tensions that have been increasing, as you said? Well, I think in Warsaw, everyone assumes that it's Orban, uh, prime minister, who calls the shots. So I don't think the visit will make a very large difference. Poland is really very, very forward on support to Ukraine. All, you know, majority of the military support and humanitarian support goes through Poland. Poland is a land bridge to Ukraine. And so in the opposite direction, also a lot of the exports as well as war refugees goes through Poland to the rest of the EU. And that's not something that is affected at all by the Polish-Hungarian relationship. The key thing is that Hungary does not block sanctions, especially when it comes to the oil embargo. And if the president, uh, Hungarian president, comes with the message that Hungary is off the fence and is now supporting the sanctions, it will be welcome. But if not, there will be no um, sort of understanding from Warsaw why Hungary is deciding to block this absolutely key uh, common position. Gazita, is Vladimir Putin emboldened by Viktor Orban's actions, by Hungary's actions? Um, the function of Orban and other Putin Fashteya is to be used by the propaganda in Russia so that um, the TV in Russia can say, hey, not everybody in Europe is against us. In reality, the people are for in favor of Russia and against the so-called nationalists in Ukraine. And see, Mr. Orban says this and that. And um, they know themselves that it's not true, that it does not work, but it's a very important factor within the propaganda in Russia. So a propaganda victory that makes it possible for Vladimir Putin to continue doing what he's doing, at least with the support of his people. Exactly. So um, I'm going to turn a little bit to Germany and talk briefly about what uh, columnist Andreas Klute of Bloomberg Opinion uh, described as a war of open letters. Georg, you signed a letter along with 155 other Eastern Europe experts demanding the German government do more for Ukraine. And this letter actually was published a month before the war started. Is that letter or is this letter writing that you and others have done helping sway German actions one way or the other when it comes to arming Ukraine? I don't think so, frankly. Uh, in many ways, I think these letters, that's, uh, including some that I have signed, they also have something to do with a bit of a community building because there is a very strong community of uh, Eastern Europe experts in Germany. This is a country that is sort of very strongly interested and also oriented towards Eastern Europe. Uh, and there are many who have been saying for years that German Eastern policy, German Russia policy was wrong-headed. So some of these letters 
especially also of the last couple of weeks. They serve to basically um, nurture this community. There have been others, of course, uh, including one calling on the chancellor not to supply weapons to Ukraine that perhaps have uh, received more attention in public. But all in all, I would say that uh, these so-called wars of open letters, they're a bit of a German quark. Um, this is a country that is in many ways uh, very deliberative. Uh, there's an awful lot of discourse politically, publicly about each and every issue in this country or internationally. So things are being sort of discussed uh, almost endlessly. Uh, this is a strength democratically of this country, but it's also a weakness uh, when it comes to Germany making swift decisions. So these letters are an expression of this. But I would say that the letter that has received most attention the one calling out against weapons deliveries has basically been uh, sort of uh, after the fact, as it were, because the chancellor in particular has been dragging his feet for weeks on end uh, without making decisions about these arms deliveries. Uh, so calling on him not to deliver any weapons was in many ways futile because it hadn't happened. It hasn't happened since. There will be some very modest uh, arms deliveries, uh, but in principle, these letters have less of an impact than it may seem on the surface. So we just heard Jörg's view. Now, Gazina and Michal, I want to ask you for a German and a non-German perspective on the following question. Is Germany doing right by Ukraine? Is it fulfilling its responsibilities to the EU and NATO? It's a difficult question to answer because um, our Bundeskanzler Chancellor acts um, not in the most transparent way and he communicates not very luckily. So to say it in a positive way, I think... Yes, Germany does a lot. It could do more, but it does more than I expected a few weeks ago. But it's not communicated in the right way. And what could be done more, of course, is in terms of sanctions and so on. I think in this situation, it's extremely important also to rhetorically uh, support Ukraine in a maximum level and to make Ukraine as strong as possible. And not only to say uh, we need a ceasefire as soon as possible, but to encourage Ukraine to hold the ceasefire and negotiations from a point of maximum strength. And this is something that Berlin is not able to transport to the public. And Michal, what do you think? Poland has a habit of being a little critical of Germany. What about in this case? Um, is Germany doing enough? Well, it's not only Poland that is critical <laughs> of Germany right now. And again, I'm coming back from Tallinn, where the view of Germany is, in fact, very negative. I was just looking at a statement from the Latvian defense minister, who's talking about basically trust in Germany evaporating. And that's a very strong message. I really, you know, would love for the listeners in Berlin to hear this, that because of how slowly Germany is moving, the trust on the eastern flank, uh, the recognition that Germany is doing stuff is just evaporating and is going in the wrong direction. Communication is part of this. But Germany is a couple steps behind where it should be, precisely because it's not like another country. There is an expectation of leadership from Germany, 
especially after uh, Chancellor uh, Scholz's speech on February 27th about Zeitwende. So it's not Warsaw only. In Warsaw, there is a, the, the view is, in fact, quite critical, but it really uh, is something that I see across the eastern flank of NATO and the EU. So to follow up on that, Liana, I mean, what Michal is describing is a you know, potentially dangerous rift between Eastern European countries and Germany because Germany is being seen as a laggard. We talked earlier about Orban and Hungary potentially blocking sanctions. Are there other weaknesses or cracks in the European unity? How do you see this? Do you see this as being you know, a fight among friends and resolvable or pretty dangerous and serious? Well, I do think that despite the United response, there was a fundamental divide when it comes to the question of how to understand Russia and how to understand Russia's future behavior. So at the beginning of the war, everyone was for a short period of time on the same page. And both Germany and France said, oh, look, the Eastern Europeans have not been Cassandras. Actually, they were right. But now we have another divide emerging and the Eastern Europeans together with the UK and to some extent also the US understanding that Russia is on a path of aggression and escalation in the future and that Russia needs to be contained and weakened. This is not the position necessarily of France and to some extent Germany is similar to France. France's position is that peace can return to Europe after Ukraine and the war in Ukraine is resolved after a negotiated agreement is found. And President Macron said this in his speech. He said that we have to take care not to humiliate or to take revenge on Russia. And this is a very different understanding of, you know, the Ukraine war basically being a regional conflict after which we can again find some sort of European security balances, these are Macron's words, with Russia. And this is something that Eastern Europeans, the UK, the US do not share. They think that we need to contain Russia because it will not divert from its path of aggression and escalation in the future to the contrary. Let me ask each of you this final question. Um, and just if you can keep your answers a little shorter, just to make sure that we keep to time. How long do you think this war will last? And is it going to spill into other countries? And we'll start with Michelle. Thank you. Um, I guess it's in my interest to say, but I really think that this war will not spill to other countries. Yet, I think this level of brutality and on and off fighting will continue for a long, long time. Not for weeks, uh, not only for months, but I think we'll have a level of some kind of conflict for probably years, even though um, many here expect that by September, there will be some kind of uh, ceasefire uh, between Russia and Ukraine. It's a just question how then the ceasefire will be enforced. Jörg, what do you say? Well, I'm a little more optimistic, put it this way. Uh, I hear a lot of people, including Michal just now, uh, who think that this uh, is bound to be a lengthy war of attrition. And yes, there are certainly indications to this uh, or in this direction, but I think there also is a chance for this to uh, last much less um, long than many expect. I think we see that uh, Russian military capacity is declining fast. Uh, 
Its economy is under enormous pressure. Uh, this will have an impact on Russian society. On the other hand, I think the Ukrainians are on the up. Um, they have strong manpower and they can draw on more. They uh, get more material from Western allies. They do have the support of an entire society. So I would not be surprised if uh, over the summer we see a more serious push by Ukraine that may well lead uh, to a faltering of Russian military uh, capacity. So I think there is a chance for this war to last less long than uh, than many expect and perhaps to be over by the end of the year. Um, I'm going out on a limb with this, but I'm quite optimistic that this may be shorter than many expect. Gazino, what do you say? Well, I'm less optimistic, so I would not exclude that Russia would attack the non-NATO member states like Moldova and Georgia. And I think concerning the length uh, of the war, how long it would, uh, will last, I would say it depends very much on weapon supplies from the West. And I see a big danger that if Russia and Ukraine agree on a ceasefire and Russia would not pull out of Ukraine to the whole and would not leave also Crimea and uh, the Donbass areas occupied already in 2014, then Russia would just take a break and attack Ukraine again uh, as soon as it's possible for Russia. Liana, uh, you are get to wrap it up for today. Optimism or pessimism? What is your answer? Well, I think the war will end at some point, but the conflict will not end as long as Vladimir Putin is in power. As Gazina said, he has greater ambitions and he will not change his goals. He's on a historic mission. And as long as he's in power, the war in Ukraine or the immediate fighting may end. But the confrontational relationship that we will have with Russia will remain for years, if not decades. So I have a feeling we're going to be talking about this issue more again in the future. Um, that's our show for today. Joining us in the studio were Liana Fix, Program Director for International Affairs at the Körber Foundation in Berlin, and journalists and former Deutschlandradio Moscow correspondent Gesine Dornblut. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks so much. And joining us online were Michal Bernowski, who heads the GMF office in Warsaw, and Jörg Föbrig, Senior Fellow and Director for Central Eastern Europe at the GMF office here in Berlin. Thanks for joining. Great. Thank you. And thank you for listening. I'm your host, Rachel Tausenfreund of the German Marshall Fund. And I'm your host, Soraya Sorhadi Nelson of Common Ground Berlin. Our senior producer is Dina El Sayed, and our social media editor is Stefano Montali. Common Ground is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. Our partners are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Goethe Institute. All Common Ground and GMF's Out of Order episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also check out our respective podcast websites, commongroundberlin.com and gmfus.org. 